Good morning. We're in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the bookshelf in front of you. Just a reminder, last week we talked about the moral law of God and what the purpose of the moral law of God is. We talked about the moral law of God condemns sin. We talked about the moral law of God shows a person's lack of perfection. So that when you look at God's moral law, we see ourselves falling short of that rule, that law, that command. Then we talked about the consequences with the law at work in the world of sinners. The moral law of God teaches who God is. It explains the character of God to the world. The moral law of God and the sin nature will produce more sin. You combine the law with your personal sin nature, you will end up sinning more. Uh, Israel tried to keep the moral law, and as you know, reading your Old Testament, they failed miserably. They failed completely. They did not even come close to salvation by doing good works. It did not work. Uh, Church Father said, quote, God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from God. That's good. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. God commands what we cannot do, that we may know what we ought to seek from God. So the law shows us what we come up short in. What we fall short of. What we do to displease God. There's a woman in Kentucky. I don't have her name or I'd give it to you. She received a $5 traffic ticket. $5 traffic ticket for running a stop sign. Running a stop sign. $5 ticket. She complained about her $5 ticket. She got a lawyer to fight her $5 ticket. The lawyer found a section in the Kentucky Constitution, section 149, which says voters in all cases except for treason, felony, breach of peace, or violation of election laws shall be privileged from arrest during their attendance at elections that they're going to or returning from. She said she was going to an election, so she ran the stop sign And according to the Constitution, that's okay of Kentucky. So, if you're ever in Kentucky, no, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) Don't do it. She broke one law, and she was covered by a second law. That second law had greater power than the first law. Now... We have what we call an Old Testament 
and a New Testament. We have an old law, which we saw in the Old Testament that we could not keep. We saw a nation who tried to live by the moral law of God, and they could not do it. They fell short. And then we had Jesus who came and gave to us a fulfilled law of God. And that is allowing us to have victory over the Old Testament law that we cannot keep. We have one law that we broke, and we have another law whereby we get a life in a relationship with God. Now, the problem is, we have a lot of people living under the old law. They try to do good things to earn their way to heaven. They try to do more good things than bad so that they can get to heaven by doing more good than evil. The problem is, you get eternal separation from God for doing one sin. That's a problem. The believer who breaks the Old Testament law needs to receive mercy from God to have the second law placed over us as an act of grace. Now, we're in Romans chapter 7, drop down to verse 9. Romans chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, give us a little bit more information about the law and how it works with our sin nature, and then talks about how we can have victory over the law. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the command came, sin became alive and I died. What are the negative effects that will happen to a person who encounters the moral law of God? Number one, with the law, sin becomes more active. Sin becomes more active. When we sin with our sin nature and we have the moral law of God and we know it, we end up making sin active in our lives. I once was alive apart from the law. Now, a lot of people have a problem understanding that passage, what that phrase, and what Paul means by that. Some people think that Paul's talking about when he was before the age of 13. In the Jewish community, when a boy gets 13, he becomes and takes an oath that he will follow the law. Some people think that he's talking about that. The problem is, is that in the wealthy, well-to-do families in that day and age, they started teaching the boys the law at the age of five. The problem we know is looking around today that people still try to live by some kind of moral code and they fall short of that moral code and they fall into more sin and they make sin alive and active in their life. And they try to live by good works rather than evil works. I think Paul is talking about his life before salvation. We know when he came to salvation, it was on the Damascus Road. God spoke to him. 
we know that his life changed when he had the encounter with God on the Damascus Road. When that happened, his life changed. He experienced the mercy of God and was saved. Before that, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he thought he was free from the law. He thought he kept the law. He thought he was a good person and deserved heaven. But when the commandment came, the commandment this is the first time we have this in Romans. The commandment, I believe he's talking about Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. The specific command may be talking about last week, coveting, the law of coveting. The way we talk about the moral law, it talks about the conscience, talks about creation, it talks about specific revelation that comes from God in the Bible, all those things that we do by our nature trying to be moral that reflect the character of God. I think Paul's talking about and calls it the law in chapter 7. Here he says the command. He refers specifically to the Moses Mosaic law. When he had the Mosaic law, sin became alive. Because of the moral law of God, the person's sin nature, he had a new life of sinful actions. He did sinful things even without trying. He did sinful things all the time. He didn't know any other way. He sinned. He sinned. And the sin woke up with the moral law of God and came into his life actively working. The, the Greek term there is translated revive. But we could say, with the moral law, sin was resurrected in our lives. Resurrected in our lives. It became alive. And what's he say at the end of verse 9? I died. Second point. What are the negative effects that will happen to a person who encounters the moral law of God? Number two, with the law, sin puts the non-believer under the penalty of death. Sin puts people under the penalty of death. When you have the moral law from God, either through your conscience, either through general revelation and creation, whatever, or specifically when you get the Bible and you understand the Bible, those moral laws of God put you under the penalty of death. Specifically, spiritual death. Separation from God. Eventually, one day, physical death. And then one day after you stand before the great white throne, it'll be eternal death. You'll eternally be separated from a holy, loving God forever. Notice verse 10, the end of verse 10. Prove to the result in death for me. So he died, he died a death. The moral law of God leads to life, but I was found in a surprising way to result in death. I thought it would bring life, but it brought death. Proved as a result, death. So you died, you encountered death, and third thing, verse 11 the last part of verse 11, 
and through it, killed me. Through it, killed me. You died, you encountered death, and it killed you. Now, now I may be assuming something here, but I think that's why there are three deaths in Scripture. Spiritual, physical, eternal. And I think that's why he says died here three different ways. When you encounter the moral law with your sin nature, you will break the law and you will deserve death to die, to be killed. You will be separated eternally from God. Third thing, third thing. Verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life, this commandment, which was to result in life, Prove to result in death for me. What are the negative effects that will happen to a person who encounters the moral law of God? Number three, with the law, sin will not bring joy and peace to your life. The law will not bring peace and joy to your life. It brings death. It brings death. The commandment, again, is talking about, I think, the Mosaic law. The Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. You can't keep that law. You, by nature, will want something that somebody else has that you cannot have. And you sin the way of life. It was to result in the way of life. If it was possible for you to keep the Ten Commandments without ever sinning, Guess what would happen? You would never die. But because you break the Ten Commandments, one day you will die physically. And you'll stand before a great white throne and you'll be judged guilty. And you will spend eternity separate from God. Because you tried to do more good things than evil. Result in life. The way of life was to keep the law. But with your sin nature, it's impossible to keep the law. <clears throat> the life there seems to be talking about your life on earth. The moral law of God shows believers how to live on this planet when you are alive on this planet. Ezekiel, write this down. Ezekiel 20, verse 11. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observed them, he will live. You obey the commands in the scriptures, you will live. The moral law of God is to lead believers to righteousness and peace with God and the peace of God. But you try to do it on your own, your sin nature will produce death. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man shall live. You shall live if you keep his commands and judgments. You will live. But because you have a sin nature, you will never experience joy and you will never experience peace. <clears throat> Let's, if you have a sin in your life, and you find yourself committing it every week. 
that sin will never give you joy. It never, never, never will do that. It will never, never give you peace. It'll never give you peace with God, and it'll never give you the peace of God. It will always, always fail you. Verse 11. The fourth thing the law will do. Verse 11. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and, though, and through it killed me. Deceived me. What are the negative effects that will happen to a person who encounters the moral law of God? Number four. With the law, sin will not bring the truth. Sin will not bring the truth. I think one of the reasons that this world today, our culture today, cannot decide what truth is, is because we give in to sin so much. Because sin will deceive us. Therefore, we have a bad opinion of what truth is. Therefore, we can't come together as a group and say what truth is. Truth is the commands and laws and the moral law of God. But we can't agree on that because we enjoy sin way too much. Notice what sin does. It deceives me. Deceives me. Sin is a liar. It will always lie to you. It deceives you and gives you the wrong logic, gives you the wrong wisdom. The Greek term means to lead astray. Sin becomes a person that deceives people. The best way to deceive people today is to tell them that they are acceptable to God by their own good works. And they are deceived. They will live a life thinking that one day they're going to get heaven by doing good things, and they will stand before God, and God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. There is no need to trust in somebody else's work. Therefore, you don't need to trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. You trust your own work, your own effort, your own actions. The way of sin is to deceive and to kill. Ephesians 4.22 says, What reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Sin is described there, lust of deceit. You will be deceived. Hebrews 3.13 But encourage one another day by after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will deceive you. You will think one sin is okay and it won't be okay. It'll deceive you. Two sins, no, it's okay. It'll deceive you. Three sins, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And you will be deceived. A rabbi in the third century wrote this. He talked about Moses giving 365 laws to keep. He said, King David in Psalm 15 reduced that to 11. Okay? Isaiah in chapter 33 brought it down to 6. Okay, that's pretty good. Micah 6, 8 binds it into three commands. And Habakkuk reduced it to one. The command is, the just shall live by faith. That's a pretty good rabbi. 
I think he got it close. I think he got very close to the truth. The truth is through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who you place your faith in, and you'll be declared righteous, just, and justification. Now, the law is good. The law plus your sin nature equals more sin. But you have to understand, it's not the fault of the law. The law is good. Look at verse 12. So then. So then probably goes back to verse 7. Talking about law being sin. He answers that question now. Is the law sin? Is the law sin? Paul, as strong as he can possibly say it, he says no. The law is not sin. The law is holy. And again, by that, I think he's talking about the moral law of God. And the commandment, the Ten Commandments, is not sin. It's holy. The law is holy, holy. The commandments you find in the Word of God are holy. The moral law of God is holy. There are positive effects that will happen to the believer who encounters the moral law of God. Number one, the believer will, be, will find the law of God holy. Now, I couldn't come up with a creative way to communicate holiness, so I said, holy. Okay? Holy means holy. It means set apart. It means pure. It means free from sin. It means holy. The law of God, the moral law of God, and the Ten Commandments are holy. The law found in the Old Testament is holy. The law found in this world, in creation, in, in conscience, is holy. When it talks about the moral law of God, it's holy. It's holy. Why is it holy? Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregations of the Son of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The law is holy because it reflects the character of God. The character of God is completely holy. The law has to be holy. The law is holy. God's rules are holy. And they are designed to help you live on this planet. So, what can I say then? Sin is not holy. Your sin nature will not do anything to produce holiness. It cannot do it. Sin nature only produces sin. Your sin nature will produce more sin this week than it did last week. That's its goal. The law is holy. It's to reflect the character of God. The moral law of God is used by sin to create sinful actions. But the law is holy. A holy law does one thing. It will show 
your unholiness. By the holy law of God, I'm looking at a bunch of unholy people. Oh, you may be dressed up good. You may have your Sunday hat on, but we're unholy. How do I know you're unholy? Because we can't keep the moral law of God, which is holy. The commandment is holy. The Ten Commandments are holy. Not, not only is the moral law of God holy, but the individual parts of God's moral law is holy. God is holy. He's given us a holy moral law. And we prove ourselves every time trying to do good things, we fall short. And you are not holy. Therefore, you have a problem. So let's keep going then. Second. So, then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous. Some of you might have in your English translations justified or justification or just. That's good. Righteous. You will fall short of righteousness. The law of God is right. So here we go. Number two. What are the positive effects that will happen to a believer who encounters the moral law of God? Number two. The believer will find the law of God is righteous. Now, I couldn't come up with another word for that to explain it better than that. It is righteous. God's law is righteous. Why is God's law righteous? Because God is... Psalm 7, 9 says, O let the evil and the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteousness... For the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. God is righteous. Therefore, he wrote and gave us a moral law that is righteous. And therefore, the moral law of God that is righteous proves one thing. When we try to do the moral law of God, it proves that we are unrighteous. We are not righteous. God is righteous, his moral law is righteous, but we can't keep the moral law of God, and we end up showing ourselves that we are unrighteous. You have a problem. Okay, we have a problem. Let's, let's see if we can figure this out. Third thing we learn about the law. It's holy, commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. What are the positive effects that will happen to a believer who encounters the moral law of God? The believer will find the law of God is good. The moral law of God is good. I couldn't come up with another word. Good. Righteous and holy. The law of God is good, righteous, and holy. Why do you think the law of God has to be good. Psalm 100 and verse 5. For the Lord is... What do you think is going to be the next word? Good. 
God is good. God is righteous. God is holy. He writes a moral law on our conscience and in our creation and through the Bible. And it teaches us that the law that he writes is holy, righteous, and good. And with us, with our sin nature, we have a good law. Guess what? The one thing it proves that we aren't good. A good law shows my sinfulness. I am a sinner by choice and by actions. The believer will do the righteous work that will be declared good. But as a sinner, I will not do anything that God will declare good and righteous and holy. So, do you understand the problem we have? God gives us a law that we're to keep, and we can't keep it. God gives us a law that's holy, and all it proves is that we are unholy. God gives us a law that's righteous. All we prove is we're unrighteous. God gives us a law that is good, and all it does is show us that we're sinful. We are in a world of hurt. But you would think, if God is holy, righteous, and good, he'd give us a way of getting out of sinning. You would think. Logic would say, if he's holy, righteous, and good, he would somehow work it so that we, being unholy, unrighteous, and sinful, can fulfill the law. Right? You would think that'd be logic. Turn to Matthew. Chap no, turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. What are the positive effects that will happen to a believer who encounters the moral law of God? Luke chapter 18. Now, I don't have time to read the whole thing. You remember this story? There are two guys going to the temple courts. Jesus is given an illustration here. He says one of them is a Pharisee, and the Pharisee is standing up saying, God, thankful, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm not a woman, I'm not a, I'm not a sinner, I'm not like that tax collector down the way. I'm a good person, I do good things, I do good, I do good, I do good, I do more good than evil, I'm good, I'm good, I'm an American, I'm good, I'm good. I'm good. By the way, he's acting like he's praying, but he never prays. If you read it, very interesting. He acts like he's praying, but he's never praying. He's talking to the people around him. He's saying, look at me, I'm good. If you don't know what good is, look at me. I'm good. Good. I'm good. I'm good. Verse 13, talking about the other guy that he pointed a finger to and say, I'm glad I'm not like him, the tax collector. By the way, the tax collector usually was a Jew who had relationships with Gentiles who was declared unclean. Uh, by the way, uh, you know how we talk about used car salesmen? 
Do we have any used car salesmen here? Okay. You know how we talk about used car salesmen, how they always cheat you? They always cheat. They always cheat. They're always lying, right? That's how the reputation that a tax collector had back then. They may be Jewish, but they spend all their time with Gentiles. They, they come and they cheat. And by the way, this is how they get paid. They get paid X amount of dollars by giving to the Romans. They give a tax to the Romans. And anything above that which you can collect from the people, you keep. So you go out and you try to cheat as many people as you can because the more you cheat them, the higher your salary is. And you pay X to the Romans, and they're happy, and you keep the rest to yourself. So in that day, in that culture, the person you would call the cheat of all cheats are the tax collectors. This tax collector is sitting in the courts of the Gentiles, and he's praying. Now, by the way, let me give you a lesson on how to pray. Okay, you know what we do? What do we do? Most of us close our eyes. There are a couple of you that don't, and I watch you. you know. But most of us close our eyes. And you know what we usually do with our heads? We bow them. Okay? You would not work in that culture. Okay? Because you don't pray that way in that culture. What you do in that culture is you look up. And you look to the sky. And you raise your hands... So that God can look down and see who's praying. Okay? You raise your hands and you look to heaven and you pray out loud and you ask God to do whatever it is that you want him to do and you pray. That's how you pray. So if we practice praying, all of you would have to stand up and raise your hands and look up high. But we'll, maybe we'll start that on Wednesday night if you're in prayer meeting. Okay? You would stand up, raise your hands, look up high, and you would pray. Notice verse 13, Luke chapter 18. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, and he's standing, he's supposed to be standing. You stand praying, so he's doing right. And some distance away, even was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He won't pray the right way. He's breaking the rules. He's not looking to heaven when he prays. He can't get himself to look to heaven. But was beating his chest. Now where is his hand supposed to be doing? His hands are supposed to be up. But his hands are busy hitting himself. So he's breaking all the rules. And he's saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. God, have mercy on me. I am the number one sinner in Israel. That's what he's saying. The sinner. I'm the only sinner in Israel. I'm it. I'm the biggest, baddest sinner in town. I'm it. God, I need you to be merciful to me. I need you to show me some mercy. 
When sin becomes alive, the response that I have, I am lost without mercy. I will not beat myself and show that I'm repenting of my sins. I will see myself as the sinner and I will cry out to God and ask for mercy. If he would, please, could you maybe, if you're able, give me, show me a little mercy. Those who are proud exalt themselves. Those who have realized they fall short of the moral law of God cry for mercy. The Pharisee left the temple and he felt good because he did one more good thing. He prayed without praying. He talked to everybody about how good he was, but he didn't pray. But he did one more good thing. He did not pray, never addressed God. He was not forgiven. He never confessed his sins. He went away not clean. He wasn't qualified to worship God because he remained separated from God because of his sin, trying to keep the moral law of God with his sin nature. He still had unconfessed sin in his life. And he left. This guy will not even pray the right way. He won't lift up his hands. He won't look up above to heaven because he didn't feel worthy to pray to God like everybody else does. He cried out for mercy. Verse 14. Next verse. Next verse. Here we go. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified. This man, the best sinner in town, went to his house justified because God heard his prayer. Even prayed the wrong way. God heard the prayer. He didn't pray according to everybody else. He prayed a different way. He asked for mercy. He said, please give me mercy. I'm the number one sinner in town. Give me mercy. I need a little mercy. Just give me 5% mercy, God. And Jesus Christ says he went away justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The Pharisee one day will be humbled when he stands before the great white throne. He will be humbled and sent away. All the good things he did aren't worth anything. Tax collector humbled himself. And he will be exalted. He'll be brought into heaven, given a resurrected body, and given the ability to praise and worship God. He went justified. He humbled himself. God honors humility. The grace of God can cover the greatest sinner in this room, even if you're a tax collector. Sinners think they're good, the saved believer knows they're wicked. The lost believe the kingdom of God is for them because they're worthy of it. The saved know the kingdom of God is for those who are unworthy. The lost believe eternal life is earned. The saved know that it's a gift from God. The lost seek God's reward. 
The saved knows that they need forgiveness. Next slide. Did I give number four? Number four. The believer will find the law of God is the path to mercy. Whenever you study or try to do good things and you fall short, understand that you fell short exactly the way you should. And you need mercy. You need to cry out to God and cry out to God and do it your way, however you want to do it. Just cry out to God and say, I need mercy. And guess what God does? He forgives you and gives you mercy. Practical application. Will I use the moral law of God when sharing the gospel message with non-believers so that they can find the roadmap to mercy and away from death? Because if you don't get mercy, death is the only thing ahead of you. Will I use the moral law of God when sharing the gospel message with non-believers so they can find the roadmap to mercy and away from death? Away from death. There is a missionary. He went to some place. I don't know where it's at. But he went to some place and he got permission by the chief of the tribe to stay and to teach his lessons. But they only gave him an amount of time. Then he was talking to the chief one day and he said to the chief, we have laws too. We say, don't steal, don't take your neighbor's wife, don't bear false witness. We have laws like that, the chief said. Missionary says, we have laws like that too. But with our laws, the master gives us the power to keep his laws. The chief says, your God teaches you, gives you power to keep the laws. Our gods don't do that. I want you to stay and teach us how we get the power from your God. The missionary said, well, I really can't teach you. I cannot do it, but God gives them power. If they ask for it and they listen to his word. So he continued and stayed on teaching the people how to get the power of God by listening and asking God for salvation. Now in that country, and I don't know where it is, there are 450,000 believers because of that missionary sharing with people the power of God. The power of God will help you keep the laws of God and will get you to the place where you will be a recipient of his mercy. And with his mercy comes power to keep the law. And God will be glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Father, that you truly will be glorified as we seek, Father, to live this life, understanding that our friends that are non-believers are trying to do good things to earn their way to heaven. Help us, Father, to explain to them that it will not work. They cannot do it. They cannot keep the law. The law is to show their unholiness, their unrighteousness, and their sinfulness. Father, that's it. 
The only way is to receive mercy. And the only way to get that is from Jesus Christ, who lived completely under the law and kept the law perfectly. I pray, Father, you help each one in this room to understand if they've not asked for mercy before, that they ask for mercy today. And you will grant it, Father. You will give mercy. Doesn't matter how we pray. Doesn't matter if we break the rules. It doesn't matter. But Father, help us to ask for mercy. Because you will give it to us and you'll give us the power to keep the law. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.